0: Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and of course, whoever. Uh, Not sure if anyone's necessarily interested in hearing about this, but I thought I'd mention anyway. Why not? This past Wednesday, I got my first COVID vaccination shot. I believe it was the Moderna vaccine specifically. All in all, it wasn't that bad. Like a lot of people, I was having trouble finding an appointment, and then one morning I just happened to get up a little earlier than usual, and so for the heck of it I decided to quickly check CVS's website. CVS is a big drugstore chain here in the States. Uh, I had been checking the site regularly, but they would always be fully booked, with maybe the exception of a couple of openings in towns that were literally over an hour away. Uh, but to my surprise, that morning there was an available opening one town over for the very next day. And this is probably in keeping with my somewhat comically neurotic personality, but for me, I feel like the worst part of actually going and getting the shot was just the awkward experience of waiting for someone to acknowledge my presence. Uh, there was a long, slow-moving line of people waiting to get prescriptions filled, and I didn't want to be rude and skip the line, but at the same time, I want to let them know I was there. So I'm kind of awkwardly hovering. And every once in a while, an employee behind the counter would glance my way like I had two heads and then put their head down again. And then finally, someone looked at me in a way that I felt like I finally had an opening to speak up. I guess I was supposed to check in digitally. Is that the right term? Digital sounds so 80s. But I was supposed to check in on my phone when I arrived. But hey, uh, another reason I wanted to talk to someone is that there's two different CVS locations in Bilrica, Mass, and they're pretty close together, and there was no number out front, so I wanted to make sure I was actually in the right building, which seems pretty important. But it turns out I was, thankfully, and the lady who gave me my shot was actually pretty cool. Uh, One of the first things she did was warn me in this serious tone that my arm was going to hurt. And I'm thinking, I'm not afraid of needles, I've been getting allergy shots since I was a kid, what's my arm gonna get a little puffy or sore, who cares? So I politely said, oh okay, and then she looks me in the eye and replies, as if I wasn't taking her warning seriously enough, it's going to really hurt. But to be honest, the first day my arm didn't really hurt at all, I felt a little off, kinda lightheaded, etc, but nothing too bad. But the next morning, I woke up and my left arm, the arm I received the shot in, was really sore. It kind of reminded me of the soreness you feel the day after a serious arm workout or something like that, or maybe even if you had, you know, torn something in your arm. But that happened to be kind of a slow work day, so I went up to my sister's place to do some work for her. Uh, I was cutting up wood and lugging logs around, uh, driving a tractor. Uh, My arm was sore, but I just worked through it. Uh, But then that night when I got home, suddenly my arm seemed considerably worse. You know, I'm sure lugging heavy stuff around all day probably didn't help. Uh, And all of a sudden, you know, I felt like I was coming down with uh, flu-like symptoms, uh, chills and aches all over. So I went to bed early and woke up the next morning feeling pretty good. The flu-like symptoms were gone and the soreness in my arm was almost completely gone as well. Yeah, so, wasn't sure if that was worth sharing or not, but I figured there might be some of you out there who maybe haven't gotten your shots yet and you were wondering what it was like, or maybe there's some of you who have gotten your shots but you're just kind of curious what other people's experiences were. But yeah, anyway. And and oh yeah, as I mentioned, uh, I got the shot in Bill Ricca, And I can't ever think of Bill Ricka now without thinking of that uh, Salem Witch Trial mini-documentary I did, uh, what was that, two, three years ago? Uh, Because Bill Ricka was actually one of the New England towns that was actually touched by uh, the Salem Witch Trials or the surrounding hysteria. Um, and I, I think that's really interesting. And I actually, I love that. I love no, not, I don't love that people from Bilrica, I forget how many, may have been executed, you know, because of uh, witchcraft, uh, a, uh, witchcraft hysteria. But I just love knowing that history is that close to me, one town over. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And so before we move on to the news stories, I'd just like to quickly, famous last words, take care of yet another round of corrections. So I was listening back to the last episode for quality control purposes, and I don't think I said anything that was technically incorrect, but I feel like maybe I should have added a caveat or something like that. Um, in passing, I was talking about the historicity of the Bible, or rather the lack thereof. And as an example, I brought up the story of the Exodus. And I said, paraphrasing myself, that the scholarly consensus seems to be that there's not much evidence supporting the biblical account of the Exodus, or that the Jewish people were ever, uh, you know, even slaves in ancient Egypt. And that does seem to be the case. I believe modern scholarship is largely skeptical of both the historicity of Moses as well as the biblical account of the Exodus in general. Uh, That being said, I was afraid I may have come off as if I was suggesting there couldn't be any historical basis. And keep in mind, I'm a podcaster, non-archaeologist. I always do my best to be as honest and accurate as possible and then try to do my homework. Uh, But I'm a guy who swings a hammer for a living and my knowledge of these matters, you know, has its limits. Although I'm always trying to improve myself by learning more. Uh, But I suppose we can't rule out that there could have been some event or circumstances that inspired the biblical tale. Uh, There were interactions between ancient Egypt and various Semitic peoples. At times, there were even Semitic peoples dwelling in Egypt. And it's uh, funny, a recurring theme in the Old Testament is the conflict or animosity between the Jewish people and the so-called Canaanites, But ironically, I think it's believed that the Israelites, in a sense, were Canaanites or that they emerged from Canaanite civilization or culture. Uh, Canaanite is kind of a blanket term for a number of Semitic peoples living in the so-called land of Canaan, what we now call the Levant. Is it the southern uh, Levant specifically? Try not to get myself into uh, trouble by overreaching the bounds of my knowledge again. Um, And I think that in in a way, maybe that helps to explain or shed some light on this kind of bitter rivalry between the Israelites and the so-called Canaanites. You know, you had this kind of budding or developing monotheistic civilization struggling to differentiate itself from its neighbors. And I think it's believed that Hebrew monotheism probably grew out of Canaanite polytheism. And there's a term, and I'm having a tip of the tongue syndrome, I think it's henotheism, isn't that it? Let me look it up. But I think it means worshipping a single god, while not necessarily denying the existence of other gods. But I just did a quick Google search, and it looks like, uh, I think my definition was mostly right, but my pronunciation was wrong.
1: Henotheism.
0: Henotheism. I said henotheism. Um, Let's see what they give for a definition. Adherence to one particular god out of several, especially by a family, tribe, or other group uh, henotheism is the worship of a single overarching God while not denying the existence or possible existence of other lower deities. And of course, uh, one of the many names for a God or Yahweh is El. And, uh, I I believe El is a word used in general for a, um, for a deity, usually the kind of, um, the, the dominant or patriarchal deity of a pantheon, I think. Let me see. Oh, this is Wikipedia. Yeah, I know. Get off my back. Uh, <laughs> L is a Northwest Semitic word meaning God or deity or referring as a proper name to any one of multiple major ancient Near Eastern deities. Specific deities known as El or Il include the supreme god of the ancient Canaanite religion and the supreme god of East Semitic speakers in Mesopotamia's early dynastic period. In Northwest Semitic use, El was both a generic word for any god and the special name or title of a particular god who is distinguished from other gods as being quote-unquote THE god, El is listed at the head of many pantheons. In some Canaanite and Ugaritic sources, El played a role as father of the gods or of creation. And then something that I've always loved, you know, always found very kind of, uh, as kind of mysterious and provocative, is that another name for God in the Bible is Elohim. And Elohim is kind of plural, for God, you know, you have El, then you have Elohim, like you have Seraph, a type of angel, and then you have Seraphim or Cherub, Cherubim. Um, I think biblical apologists will say that this is just God being referred to or referring to himself. I suppose in the royal we. And it shouldn't be taken literally that there are actually multiple gods. Well, others will say or argue that this, uh, you know, could be an echo of God's kind of polytheistic roots, or it could indicate that at the time there was still a kind of active henotheism, uh, an active belief that, yeah, God's the man, he's the God, but there are, you know, technically there's still other gods out there. God's just the top dog, so to speak. But how would I get this far afield? Uh, back to what I was addressing: uh, the story of the Exodus, so or the historicity or lack thereof. Uh, you know, so given the fact that there were Semitic peoples in ancient Egypt at different times. Uh, Could the story of the Exodus be an echo of some pre-Israelite flight from oppression or something like that? I think at one point there was even a Canaanite revolt against the Egyptians. I'm groping in the dark here, but I was just trying to make the point that as historically inaccurate as the biblical narrative is, I guess you can't rule out that there may have been some event or circumstances that inspired the story. Oh, and this is interesting. Uh, I already knew about the Battle of Megiddo, but for some reason I didn't put two and two together in my head. Um, The Battle of Megiddo fought 15th century BC, was fought between Egyptian forces under the command of Pharaoh Tutmos III, and a large rebellious coalition of Canaanite vassal states led by the king of Kadesh. It is the first battle to have been recorded in what is accepted as relatively reliable detail. But I just brought that up because I had just been talking about the idea of a Canaanite revolt against the ancient Egyptians, etc. But I've always been fascinated by Megiddo as this kind of pivotal battleground, and um, it's actually where the word Armageddon comes from. Uh, First it's Megiddo, then it was Har-Megiddo. The prefix Har, I think, meaning uh, like a mount or mound or something like that and Armageddon is Hebrew then Armageddon is translated into Greek as Armageddon I believe that's how it works and uh Armageddon is said to be uh where the final battle during the end times will take place and that's probably an echo of the importance of Megiddo as a battleground throughout you know ancient history and I think it's also uh there's something in the Bible about King Ahab um, and, uh, and Megiddo. Let me see. Oh, I just looked it up. Uh, Megiddo refers to a fortification made by King Ahab that dominated the plain of Jezreel. Okay. So, yeah, it's interesting stuff. And so, wow, what was meant to be a quick little clarification quickly turned into a deep dive into ancient history. But finally, on to the second correction. Don't worry, this is the last correction for this episode, but I'm sure the future will hold many more in store. But uh, yeah, I couldn't believe it. After I finished listening back to that episode in my car, the podcast app automatically queued up that Surviving Death episode, uh, that review episode I did, and started playing it from where I had left off somewhere near the end. And I found yet another error that got by me somehow. So yeah, um, it was near the end, as I was saying, in the uh, the reincarnation segment of that episode. In fairness to myself, I don't think the error affects my general assessment or my kind of logical analysis of the story I was looking at. Uh, But nevertheless, it was an error, and uh, I basically got someone's name screwed up. Uh, But I was talking about the story of this young Native American guy named Alex Stoney and how he's believed by members of his tribe to be the reincarnation of their head chief And here's where the mistake comes in. For some stupid reason, even though the correct information was buried in my head somewhere, I give the heads up that I hope things don't get too confusing, because both people, both the head chief and his supposed reincarnated self, are named Alex. I'm listening back to it, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I knew right away it was wrong. The head chief's first name is Albert. Albert Tate, not Alex. Now, the weird and scary thing is, for me at least, you know, I hadn't rewatched the series since recording that episode, but I knew right away, listening back to it, that I was wrong. And the head chief's actual first name is Albert. So I'm like, what the hell happened there? I possessed the correct information, but for some reason, I guess it was temporarily inaccessible and my brain decided to go off in another direction. And so even though the two errors in that nearly three-hour-long episode are relatively minor, I probably will still end up releasing a corrected or revised version at some point. But let's finally move on to the news stories. And as you're probably sick of hearing me say... I've been trying to watch how political I get on the show due to just the divisive nature of politics, Uh, unless of course it's a political story that directly has to do with religion. You know, politicians thumping the Bible, separation of church and state issues, that kind of thing. And so I had actually made a conscious decision not to cover the George Floyd verdict on the show. Um, But then you know how it goes. The next day, everyone's talking about it. A lot of the content creators I follow on YouTube or podcasters I listen to, they're all talking about it and they're covering, you know, some hot takes out there. Um, And there was a Tucker Carlson clip that was making the rounds. And uh, it really had me just shaking my head like this was weird. It was just like a really weird take. Uh, Other people were in agreement. It seemed like Tucker Carlson was just so upset by the verdict that he was kind of having an on-air meltdown. And I'm actually going to play the clip, and just to set it up for you a little, he's talking to Ed Gavin, who's a retired deputy sheriff, I believe, and a kind of law enforcement expert. And I think he's had him on the show before, and he's someone he generally agrees with. But because this guy dared to have the sane or measured opinion that Derek Chauvin or Chauvin may have gone too far, Tucker just ain't having it. Uh, So here it is. Ed Gavin is a former deputy sheriff with the New York City Sheriff's Department. He joins us with his perspective on what this means for law enforcement. Ed Gavin,
2: thanks so much for coming on tonight. Who's going to become a cop going forward, do you think? Well, I think um, people will still become uh, police officers. Um, it's um, it, this really is a learning experience for everyone. Um, let's face it. What, what we saw uh, in that video was pure savagery. I mean, the documentary evidence showed the police officer putting his knee on the perpetrator's neck while he was rear cuffed and his stomach was on the ground, causing positional asphyxia. So what I'd like to see, Tucker, is I'd like to see more training for police. I'd like to see the police trained as EMTs, like in the fire department. For example, in the New York City Fire Department, we have firefighters that are EMTs. But who gets to the scene first in most of these these situations? It's the police. So in reviewing the tape, what I saw, what I noticed was that the police officer removed um, the subject, Mr. Floyd, from his vehicle, and he was able to handcuff him, and then he was able to seat him on the ground, and he was handcuffed. At that point, they should have left him there. You know, There was no reason to move him. And obviously, Mr. Floyd, was um, he was emotionally disturbed. And at that point, you may want to say, hey, Mr. Floyd, let me take your pulse. Things of this nature. And we have to change the way we deal with people. Now, I've used hundreds of, I've, I've used force on literally over 500 people in my 21-year career in the New York City Department of Correction and in the New York City Sheriff's Department. I've never had anybody go unconscious. And, you know, that was clearly an excessive, unjustified use of force. I think the verdict was just. I think we had documentary evidence. We had testimonial evidence. And, you know, it was, it was an open and shut case. But moving forward, what we need to do, in my opinion, is we, we need to have How about enforce the a, law? Okay, do we need to force? do that? So uh, hold on, wait. So wait, slow down. Do we, do we enforce the law? Like, let's say people are going through the windows in Macy's and the cops are just standing there. Do they resign no, no. because we all, we obviously their honor's being no. violated? But they're not doing anything about it. When do they start doing something about it and protecting everyone else, not just George Floyd? No, no. What I, I want, I want people to protect. I want the police to protect people. But when specifically, what we're dealing here, we're dealing with a person in custody who was handcuffed and he was subdued. Right. At that point, you know, we have to take a different tact. And, and one of the things I just want to suggest, well, Tucker, I'm there's, totally there's a thing, willing to
1: believe that. Yep.
2: Yeah, the, the, the U.S. Department of Justice came out with a, a position paper on positional asphyxia and sudden death. It was published in, in 1995 and again in 1998. I think every law enforcement officer should read that. It should be read at roll calls because what it does it, it talks about the physiology of a struggle. Now, like I said, Mr. Floyd was brought under control. What what should have happened at that point is uh, EMS should have been summoned and he should have been placed in an ambulance and a supervisor should have been yeah. called to the scene. I I, I just think that. It was excessive, yeah, and well, it shouldn't the, happen. The, and what I'd like the, to say, the what, guy what, who did it looks like he's going to spend they, the rest of
1: his life in prison. So I'm kind of more worried about the rest of the country, which, thanks to police inaction, in case you haven't noticed, is like boarded up. <laughs> so that's more of my concern. But, but I appreciate you coming let, on, let, Ed Gavin. Thank let, you. Let, nope, done. Thank you.
0: Heather McDonald is the author. There is so much wrong with that clip. That is just unreal. Uh, first off, that guy Ed Gavin has to be one of the most measured, intelligent, and thoughtful, you know, good-natured people I've ever heard representing law enforcement on television. That guys I love that guy. Who knows, maybe he has some bad takes I don't know about. I don't know. But how the hell could you disagree with anything that the guy said there? Whether you're on the left or the right, Shouldn't that be what you want from law enforcement? To act professionally, to not use more force than is necessary? And it's scary how many people are out there who think that, you know, who are under this strange impression that kneeling on someone's neck can't, you know, obstruct their breathing. I think just yesterday, it might have been a David Pakman video, but I was looking through the comments section, and there was someone in there who was saying how sad they thought it was that people were under the impression that you can quote-unquote strangle someone by kneeling on their neck. And then uh, he insists that you can't. And usually I don't get into online pissing matches, but I thought, all right, crack my knuckles, let's dive in here. And I pointed out how the original medical examiner, I believe his name is Andrew Baker, I believe he testified at the trial... Um, how he, as well as Dr. Michael Baden, who in fairness, I believe, was hired by the family of George Floyd to perform an independent autopsy, but he's a renowned forensics expert. How uh, both of them, as well as another forensics expert, I believe, who also testified at the trial, they all seem to point to, um, asphyxiation or, you know, lack of oxygen due to neck compression as the, uh, the main cause of George Floyd's death. So this idea that, you know, oh, kneeling on someone's neck, that can't kill them, That's not going to impede the airflow or whatever, you know? Uh, I mean, where are they getting this? Are they getting it from people like Steven Crowder? Because I know Crowder did this little stunt where he took some of his little cronies outside and they reenacted the arrest of George Floyd with, uh, Crowder himself playing the part of, uh, George Floyd. Um, and so he had, like, two or three of his cronies um, on his back and legs, you know, uh, while he's face down on the sidewalk. And then another one basically playing the role of Derek Chauvin or Chauvin, whatever it is, um, kneels. I wouldn't say kneels on his neck. It looks more like his knee is kind of on cra- the top of Crowder's back, maybe edging over a little to the area of Crowder's neck, uh, but it's definitely not on his neck the way that Chauvin's knee was on George Floyd's neck. And if you go back and watch that video, man, I mean, it, it is so, it's, it's sad and grotesque at the same time. There's just something so degrading about seeing a human being have the life squeezed out of them like that. You can see George Floyd's face has gone slack and yet still Chavin or Chauvin has his knee buried in his neck. And I think they said that Floyd had gone unconscious, had lost consciousness, and yet Chauvin continued to press his knee into his neck for an additional three minutes at least. And so we had this law enforcement officer at Gavin, who I believe probably leans right generally. He's telling you that Chauvin or Chauvin went too far, and that this is death by, you know, asphyxia or asphyxiation. Uh, he even described it as savage. And I would hope that as members of a supposedly civilized society, that we could all agree, no matter what, you know, side of the political divide you're on, that nailing on someone's neck for, you know, eight or nine minutes, probably not good probably not a good thing, right? You know what I mean? And I think generally most people would agree on that, but there's so much political tribalism out there, you know? And I think one talking point you hear is that, hey, if you just obey the police and follow their instructions or commands, you know, you, you'll be fine. It's, kind of, it's your fault for being difficult or resisting arrest or whatever. And I think you know I'm just trying to be as intellectually honest as possible. That in a lot of these cases, there is a kind of pattern or common thread, where you have problematic behavior on both sides, where you have someone who resists arrest. You know, maybe they they panic or they're high or maybe they're mentally ill. Or maybe, you know, they're just indignant that um, and they want to know why they're being arrested, that kind of thing, whatever. And then on the other hand, you have police who resent being challenged or who get pissed off and frustrated because you're being difficult, and they get emotional and resort to using excessive force. But that should be exactly the kind of thing that police are trained to deal with. Of course, some people are going to be more difficult to arrest than others, You know, if everyone acted ideally uh, or was perfect, there wouldn't be a reason to call the cops, right? Often the cops are called because someone is acting erratically. You know, whether they're high or having a breakdown or they're just, you know, in a highly emotional state, that doesn't mean that they deserve to be executed in the street. And once again, I think this is something that everyone should be concerned about no matter what side of the political divide you're on. I mean, even if you're some lily-white Republican who vacations in the Hamptons and owns a yacht and craps, you know, vanilla bean ice cream with rainbow sprinkles, that was specific. Uh, You know, something like this could touch your family, too. Let's say you—I come from a family that's, you know— rife with mental illness. Um, Let's say you have a son who's schizophrenic or an elderly parent with dementia. And there actually was a recent story about a woman who was injured while being arrested by uh, the police. I believe she was in her 70s and, yeah, suffered from dementia and had wandered away from home or something like that. Uh, So I'm not making that up, you know. And uh, there's a, a video I saw last night that really bothered me. There was a Marine Corps vet A relatively young guy. I think he was in his 30s. And he was in his daughter's hospital room. The daughter had been injured, I believe, when she accidentally, um, you know, she ran in the path of the mother's car and the mother accidentally hit her. And I think technically it was the girl's stepmother, uh, not the biological mother. But anyway, so the girl's mother or stepmother was in the hospital bed with the girl, while the girl's father and the girl's grandfather, so the Marine Corps vet's father, were also in the room. And then I think it was three, three police officers come in, and for some reason they suspected foul play. Um, And they thought they were going to find some kind of evidence on the stepmom's cell phone or something like that. And uh, the vet didn't want, the Marine Corps vet didn't want to hand over the phone uh, without a warrant. And the police kept insisting that they had a right to take the phone and that he better hand it over. And things ended up getting physical. Um, And so I think they ended up tasing the guy and tussling with him right in, you know, in the daughter's hospital room. And so I was scrolling through the comments and uh, there are a lot of people who, like myself, were kind of indignant and outraged, you know? And there are other people who are like, well, if you just listen to the cops and follow their orders. And so usually I agree that if you're stopped by the cops, you know, if you're pulled over or whatever, it's best to, you know, just be polite, follow their instructions or whatever. But in a case like this, and I understand that you would probably want to be a good parent and not cause a scene, you know, in your injured daughter's hospital room, but at the same time, you know, if you haven't done anything wrong, you're in uh, this setting where there's other people around, and the cops are just demanding, you know, unlawfully demanding that you hand over personal property, just on principle, even if I knew there was nothing incriminating on that device, I'd, you know, be hesitant to hand it over too. And supposedly no one knows why the cops thought that there might be something incriminating on the device. And as far as anyone can tell, it looks like it really was just an accident. And I think the father ended up getting charged with resisting arrest, even though he wasn't really being arrested for anything. He was just refusing to hand over a cell phone, and things got violent. I think the cops may have been the ones who initiated the physical interaction or whatever uh but they ended up dropping those charges against the father and the father is now suing them as i think he should and just so i don't have to issue any corrections i was just looking at the story again and uh yeah this story was all over the place and some accounts they were calling the woman the girl's stepmom but uh here it says it's technically um the uh, the Marine Corps vets, I keep feeling like I'm saying Corvette, like the car, the Marine Corps vet, not, I know a heavy story. I shouldn't be joking, but it's just me being self-conscious. So uh, apparently the Marine Corps veteran, um, he and this uh, woman, they're not married yet. Uh, it's his fiance. So I guess technically it's not the girl's stepmom yet. And apparently there were four officers. I guess the first was a detective. And then when the father wouldn't hand over uh, the cell phone without a warrant, uh, I think he returned with three more officers. uh, But I think they still didn't have a warrant. And I think at one point they said they were going to arrest him for obstruction, even though they didn't have a warrant, apparently. Uh, So it's just crazy. It's always really disturbing when you hear about police officers, you know, overstepping their bounds. Because like I say, I think um, baked into the cake, you know, there's a kind of inherent tension between the public and uh, the police. Because on the one hand, in a civilized society, you need people to enforce laws, respond to emergencies and help people in trouble, hold people accountable for wrongdoing, that kind of thing. You know what I mean? So you need something like the police, a court system, that kind of thing. But at the same time, I think people inherently—I know I do—resent having authority lorded over them. And so I think this feeling, you know, that there's this jackbooted element of society that can pretty much you know, stop you or pull you over whenever they want and probably get away with doing a hell of a lot to you that maybe they shouldn't be doing, you know, Um, and that they can subject you to a kind of abuse of power. This does not make people feel good, and it does not instill trust, you know. And I think for the good of society, police need to be held more accountable, and there needs to be more of an emphasis on the fact that They're human just like we are. They might be invested with a certain authority, but they're not any better than we are. And if they abuse their power, there has to be accountability. And I don't know if I have any listeners who are in law enforcement. If I do, hopefully, um, you know, that didn't come off as offensive in any way. And I know that uh, there's a fellow podcaster I'm friends with, Who's an ex-cop? I don't know if he talks about it on a show or not, so I guess I'll kind of uh, err on the side of uh, discretion or or uh, privacy for now. But uh, <laughs> if he listens to this episode, hopefully he doesn't take offense. And I know I use the phrase "jackbooted," which I'm sure probably doesn't go over well with people in law enforcement, but hopefully you know the point I was trying to make. And uh, I know that cops are people. And so there's a lot of good cops out there. And the problem is, I think it's the bad cops who overstep their bounds that give a bad name to the rest, especially when they're not ultimately held accountable. But here in the case of Derek Chauvin or Chauvin, we are seeing accountability, which is a good thing, I think. But Tucker, man, holy crap. So the feeling I got is that, you know, his guess was being so professional, so civil, um, so measured, and uh, was really making some great factual points. And so Tucker probably couldn't make any logical, irrational counter-arguments, because how could you? So he just kind of melts down. He's upset that the guy won't fall in line with his narrative, and he starts kind of wildly throwing these straw men out there like he brings up uh, looting like, oh, what about the looters? What are cops supposed to do when people are looting or whatever? Paraphrasing. And I'm like, can't you simultaneously be against both police brutality and looting? Are you suggesting that this retired law enforcement officer that you often have on your show and who probably agrees with you on a lot of things is somehow... Pro-looting or pro-the-cops not doing anything about looting just because in this one case, he thinks an officer went too far by kneeling on a man's neck for nine minutes? Where the hell's the logical consistency in that? And one of my personal pet peeves is I hate dismissive people. Um, I hate rude people. And so when uh, at the end of the interview there, where... The um, where Ed Gavin tries to reply or respond to what Tucker is saying. And I know, you know, uh, people in entertainment and in the news have kind of hard outs or hard breaks or whatever. So sometimes they may not want to come off as rude, but they have to quickly, you know, cut away. But it almost seemed like Tucker chose to cut him off. The guy's trying to speak and Tucker's just kind of maniacally giggling and goes, nope, done. You know, I just I hate when people are kind of condescending and dismissive like that. And when Ed Gavin is rationally explaining why what Chauvin did was wrong and how he went too far, Tucker's reaction is, well, and now the guy's going to spend the rest of his life in jail or what almost like like he was upset for Derek uh, Chauvin or Chauvin. And uh, firstly, he's probably not going to spend the rest of his life in jail. Um, I, I think People are saying it might be like roughly around 20 or maybe less or something like that. Uh, I'm not sure. But that was a bit hyperbolic on Tucker's part. And secondly, I mean, the guy knelt on someone's neck until they died. What do you want to do? Give him uh, an ice cream sandwich and tell him to go on his way? It's like, come on. And okay, so if you're one of my listeners who tends to lean more right and maybe you're kind of upset with this episode, I seem to be, you know, doing my lefty thing or whatever, I will throw you a bone. We can probably all agree that Nancy Pelosi saying thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice was cringy as hell. Uh, Yeah, that was awful. It's like, no... He wasn't some sacrificial lamb or whatever. This was a this was a human being who probably would have preferred to live, but had the life squeezed out of him by uh, someone putting their ne- you know their knee on his neck. And it is funny. I have noticed George Floyd, uh, the man, his character or whatever, becoming like a political football. Some on the left, like Nancy Pelosi who seem to be kind of beatifying him or whatever. You know? Or that's an accusation that people on the right will make. It's as if, you know, um, the left is holding up George Floyd or putting him on a pedestal like he's a saint. Um, and then on the right, you have people like Candace Owens, who are just totally trying to smear the guy and um, posthumously, you know, vilify or demonize him. And I mentioned a long time ago, probably when first covering this story, that it had been revealed that maybe 10 or 15 years earlier, George Floyd had supposedly held up a pregnant woman, held a pregnant woman at gunpoint, and I expressed my disgust at that when I was first talking about it. But that doesn't mean that the guy deserves to you know, have the life squeezed out of him by someone's knee on his neck, um, or, or that... Derek Chauvin or Chauvin gets to play Judge Jerry and Executioner, if he even knew. I mean, that's for the sake of argument that Chauvin or Chauvin even knew that Floyd had done that in the past. And then Candace Owens has brought up other things like his drug use. I think uh, he may have made like amateur porn videos, things like that. And uh, so some things... In his past, maybe pretty bad. I don't know. There's the thing where, you know, holding up the woman at gunpoint. And uh, I think Candace Owen said something about abusing women or something. So maybe there is stuff like that. Uh, And then there's other stuff like the drug use, the amateur porn. And it's like all of us probably have stuff that we wouldn't want to bring up at like a family dinner. Or you know, tell our parents. Uh, maybe you had a threesome at college. Maybe you tripped balls and ran naked down the street, or whatever. <laughs> maybe you played Ookie Cookie. Is that a real thing? I was at a party once, and someone told me about Ookie Cookie. I don't know if anyone's actually ever done it. But anyway, just because you you know you have those skeletons in your closet, does, does that mean you deserve to be you know murdered on the pavement at the whim of a police officer? And that might be a little unfair of me. Maybe she's not saying that you deserve to die because of those uh, quote-unquote moral indiscretions, but rather that he shouldn't be held up as a role model. Well, I might agree in a sense that this shouldn't be about whether George Floyd is a role model or not. It's about the fact that a human being, once again, had the life drained out of them by having their neck knelt on for almost nine minutes. That's what it's about. And since I'm already on the topic, talking about policing and all that, I guess I might as well play this clip of anti deluvian televangelist Pat Robertson giving his take on all this. And it's a little choppy because I kind of pilfered it from another show and stitched it back together. But here it is.
1: Also, I want to say, you know, I I think a lot of people are thinking like I was that... Both gun, both the gun and the taser would be put on your dominant side, but it's not that way. but they, they have to cross? Where they have a different different So you actually it, have to reach across yourself yeah, but to you get feel the, the taser. difference. I yeah, mean, it's definitely there's just no comparison. As I say, they're not making tasers in this yellow color anymore. They're, they're making a they're in black. They're making them yellow. Now, how she made the difference was she shot that poor guy to death, saying, "This is what I thought. This is what I thought was my taser." And, and if you can't tell the difference in the field of those things, it's crazy. Pro-police, folks, I think we need the police, we need their servants, And they do a good job, but if they don't stop this onslaught, they cannot do this. You know, the the police in, in Virginia picked up a a lieutenant in the army and began to give him trouble, and, and our, our, our state police are highly trained but why they don't stop this and this thing is going on in Minnesota, but the Derek Chauvin, I mean, they ought to put him under the jail. He has caused so much trouble by kneeling on the the death of George Floyd. It's just, I mean, on his neck. It's just terrible what's happening, and the police, why don't they open their eyes to what the public relations are? They've got to stop this stuff.
0: Maybe they need more training. So that's pretty wild, right? And a lot of people are talking about how Now, just funny it is that Pat Robertson, this, you know, televangelist who's usually really conservative um, and who has some wacky takes on things, uh, in this clip, he's pretty spot on. He's talking common sense. And uh, I think he really touches on something where he's talking about the public relations problem. I mean, you would think if for no other reason, the police would want to make some positive changes to at least try to do something about this ongoing public relations nightmare. And I probably should have done a better job of setting that clip up. At the beginning, I think they're referring to the uh, Dante Wright case, where a female police officer supposedly, you know, accidentally grabbed her gun instead of her taser and uh, ended up fatally shooting this young guy. And just a final note, you know, once again, this is something we should all be concerned about. Obviously, a lot of these high-profile cases feature stories where African Americans are the victims of uh, excessive force, uh, you know, exerted by law enforcement. But just due to the disparity in population size, actually more whites are killed every year than any other ethnic group. So if you're a a white person, you shouldn't... um, be under the false assumption that, uh, I'm white, everything will be okay, you know? You should want to make sure that the police are held accountable when they overstep their bounds as well. And just a quick clarification, when I said more whites are killed every year, yes, I meant, um, killed by being shot to death by police. And don't worry, I'm not going all white nationalist on you, I'm just saying, you know, due to population size, Uh, Obviously, it's still the case that uh, minorities seem to be disproportionately targeted. You people are so judgy, always so hard to please. But (laughs) I'm joking. I joke. Um... Well, I guess with that, I'll call this episode a wrap. Man, am I tired. So uh, you guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page, you can follow the show on Twitter, can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to help support why I do hair, you can go to patreon.com slash the weekend out and help support the show for as little as 99 cents a month and quit anytime you want. All right, brothers and sisters until next time.